You're listening to a podcast brought to you by international law firm Trowers and Hamlins, combining market sector thought leadership, advice, and ideas, helping businesses and governments prepare for the future. Hi, thank you for joining us today. Where we continue our examination of the salient issues relevant to organisations from a cyber perspective. This forms part of Trowers and Hamlin's ongoing campaign during National Cyber Security Awareness Month. So welcome. My name is Charlotte Clayson. I'm a pa- partner at Trowers and Hamlin's. And one of my areas of expertise is helping clients deal with the fallout from data breaches and cyber attacks. So delighted to be speaking on this podcast today. And I'm joined by a cast of special guests, all experts in various aspects of cybersecurity and risk. Uh, Firstly, joined by my colleague, Liz Mully, who works like me to assist clients to prepare for and deal with the fallout from cyber attacks. I'm also delighted to be joined by our friends from Azets, Neil Belton, who's the Director of Assurance and Technology Risk, Paul Kelly, who is the Head of Cyber Services. So a really knowledgeable panel with us today to talk through today's subject, which is top tips to prepare for a cyber attack and its fallout. Um, So before we get on to the top tips, I wanted to briefly set some context for this. Of course, we're currently in the midst of the National Cyber Security Awareness Month. But taking steps to improve cyber security and cyber resilience isn't something that is just limited to one month. And it's actually something that's integral to businesses throughout the year. And from my perspective, helping clients who fall victim to cyber attacks, this isn't just an issue that won't go away. It's an issue that's increasing for clients of all different shapes and sizes and across different sectors, whether it's education, local government, real estate, healthcare, tech, the the list sort of goes on. And, And Neil, I'd like to bring you in here, if I can, just to ask in terms of putting the context to this, what what are you seeing in your line of work in terms of what's happening out there? What's the sort of prevalence of these attacks and and who's really at risk? Thank you. And I think from my perspective, the increase is in part, it's a perception supported by the media input on reporting of such risks. The actual statistics themselves show that over the last three to four years, the amount of attacks and the type of attacks has actually remained fairly steady. Indeed, the government every year issues a cybersecurity report from the Department of Culture, Media and Sport, which shows that 39% of organisations have been subject to some form of cyber attack over the years. That actually increases significantly the further down the line that you go in the size of organisation, predominantly because they're the ones that don't have the skills and expertise to be able to resolve or prepare or recover effectively from those incidents that are occurring. In terms of a decrease, it's actually a decrease since 2020 when I think we all went through the COVID incidents and there are a lot of attacks and people were finding more incidents as a result of COVID-inspired phishing emails and that kind of thing that introduced an an increase. But for the last two years, it's held steady at 39%. Of that, the majority are facing some form of phishing-type attack. That seems to be where all the focus is. That seems to be where organisations could maybe minimise their risk most of all. So I think from what you're saying, 
what we're seeing is sort of weaknesses in systems being exploited and the less you are investing in your cyber resilience the more likely you are to be subject to an attack. You talk about size, is that across all the sectors? Yeah, I mean, we find that the larger organisations, because they have better sets of skills, better resources to be able to protect, actually probably experience the greater number of attacks but the fewer number of actual outcomes and and repercussions as a result of those types of attack. The smaller organisations, because they haven't done the preparation or because they don't think it will happen to them, actually experience the greater level of risk. And there are some statistics out there that suggest that the average estimated cost of a cyber attack is around 4,200. But financially and reputationally, those levels of risks are two completely different things. And the reputational risk of you being on the front page of either the local media or indeed the national media is far greater to your brand and your organisation than what might be a relatively small financial cost. But data is your king. Data is what you actually want from your organisation and that is your value. Yeah. And what I thought was interesting, what you said in terms of the statistics that you know, we, we see so much more about this in the press uh, and it feels like a growing problem, particularly for, for the client I deal with. But the stats say that the sort of levels are, are staying the same. Do you think there's just a lot more knowledge then uh, with people around the risks associated with cyber attacks and, and understanding where they need to be looking for the weaknesses in their systems? Do you think that's part of it? That is undoubtedly part of it. And the, the fact that other organisations have had these incidents over the last few years has increased the awareness, particularly at board level, in terms of needing to do something and having a lead person on the topic, at least raising it through risk registers. What is the key issue is whether that awareness at the top level of senior management recognising that they need to do something about it actually translates into actions through the IT team, through the wider business that allows them to take the precautions that they need to do. Yeah, and I think that probably brings us quite nicely onto, well, we've set the context, but what actually are our top tips for, for, for preparing for these attacks and then dealing with the fallout? You know, you talked a bit about risk registers and preparation and, and making sure that the right levels of, of management are, are invested in this as a key priority. Um, Paul, I wonder if you could give us some um, some insight from your perspective. So our sort of top tip number one, I think, is probably going to be about the tech, your head of cyber services. So you're obviously very knowledgeable in this field. I think from from what I see, the word cyber can sometimes be quite off-putting for clients because it can sometimes seem very technical and quite frightening. And and sometimes just it sounds like a very expensive word. So I wonder if you could give us just some insight into, you know, break it down for us. How can tech help you and, and how can we really help clients embrace the tech as part of their business resilience? So thanks, Charlotte. Um, I think there's there's a few key parts to cyber, and I think people do often hear it and associate it with just technical elements of it. But I think it's always good to look at cyber in its broadest form. There's many different vectors you can get attacked through. One of them, and there's looking at it through a technical lens and what what technology we can implement. What are the people controls? So looking at addressing the behaviour piece, and I know we're going to speak about that soon. And also the process piece about how we operate as a business. On the on the, the technical side, um, there's there's a piece there where I think it's important for organisations not to look at it as a as something to be frightened of. You need to treat cyber as a business risk. It's on it's in the top five 
risks in a corporate risk register is for a reason because it affects the whole business operation. You've seen it when organisations suffer a cyber attack. It doesn't. The technology just doesn't go down. The whole business operation suffers in the back of it. And there's lots of guidance out there for organisations who, particularly smaller ones who don't have that depth of knowledge and technical skill in house, uh, that can be accessible. So there's things like there's the cyber essentials guidance, which takes you through the five key technical risk areas. And there's also the National Cyber Security Centre's 10 Steps to Cyber Security, which are key reference points for organisations to digest and think about how that works in their organisation and look at them from a control perspective. But just, in, I suppose, in some key areas to consider. So I mean, there's, there's this first layer of basic, what we'd almost call basic defences that any organisation should have. So that's things like your antivirus, your anti-malware solutions, uh, having firewalls in place, etc., as well, that uh, make minimise the risk and having strong access controls as well, making sure people are only getting access to the data that they need be. And Neil touched and yourself touched that earlier in your introduction about one of the things we've seen significant increases in is the, the response to COVID. We've now went to much more remote working, and one of the areas that, and we're all using cloud based services as part of that. So things like Three years ago, very few of us were using things like Office 365 as a, your productivity suite. So th there's a real need for having what they call multi-factor authentication. So whether that's a token, whether it's a text message you get to your phone, etc., something to, to give you an extra layer of protection there. But beyond that, it's really important to have what we call layers of defence as well on top of that. So it's having good threat detection and prevention tools. So it's looking at things like intrusion detection and prevention systems in place, operating if you can afford it and your resources can go far enough, it's having good monitoring tools uh, like security and event incident event monitoring facilities. And again, if you, the ideal scenario is if you can have a security operations centre or that type of feature where you're getting real-time analysis of threats to your network and being able to respond to that. Um, core components, again, though, at the top of that is things like patching, just keeping, keeping your software up to date uh, and to minimise uh, vulnerabilities being exploited by attackers. And also looking at areas such as adopting um, for the configuration of your devices using vendor specific guidance around about the configuration and applying that in a practical way. But also trying to make the blend right in terms of your technical security, but your operational capability. There's, there's always a, a difficult balance there to strike, but it's important you get that right because you can't have security that stops your business working. Ultimately, and maybe finally on that is, is probably about backups is really important. I've seen some organisations like been devastated because their backups have failed, um, or they've just they've been uh, encrypted um, as part of a ransomware attack. So adopting what they call the three two one guidance around backups of three copies of it, having it in two different form formats, whether that be that's on a disk and to the cloud and having one off-site so that it's accessible in the event of a disaster.
Yeah, that is all really interesting. And actually, one of the things you mentioned there was around multi-factor authentication, around patching. And that's actually something that the, the ICO in one of its, um, it recently levied a, a fine relating to a cyber attack. And the organisation that was victim of the, the cyber attack came under scrutiny by the ICO for not being prepared enough. And those were things that the ICO said, these are sort of basic things that are very effective and they're quite simple uh, and cost effective to put into place. And, you know, these are things that you, you should be doing if you don't have these sort of basic, very easy to adopt things within your your systems, then you are going to come under some some scrutiny. So I, I guess what you're saying is there's obviously some basic level things that you can be doing quite easily. And then after that, is it a sort of risk-based approach as to what level of cybersecurity, what level of tech you really need for your organisation? Yeah, I think that's always going to be the case because every organisation will have its resource constraints, whether that be financial, technical or whatever. I think with that approach, uh, it's really important that organisations look at what their critical assets are and take appropriate measures to protect them. Overall, it's really important to understand your environment, the extent of it, what your important what your data is and Always, it's for the traditional maybe insurance policy approach to it is how much can you afford to spend to protect and what's the cost if, if you lose it overall. Brilliant. And I think that sort of leads us nicely on to, you know, you're thinking about your risks to the business and and how you might frame what you were investing in cybersecurity and practically how you go about that. But one of the key things that you can do is think about the people in your organisation. You know, we all know that tech alone isn't really enough to eliminate all risk for your business. And, you know, we, we mentioned previously things like, uh, Neil, you mentioned the issues around phishing scams and how prevalent those are at the moment. So I think our next top tip has to be about getting things right with your people and they are there to help protect your business as well. So, Neil, can you just sort of dig into that a bit deeper in terms of, you know, what part do people play within our organisation when it comes to cybersecurity? Certainly, people are absolutely the key element in order to provide good cybersecurity response within an organisation. They're the ones who are clicking on the emails. They're the ones who will share information with the public. They're the ones who have access to your system. So it's very important that they understand the importance of good security, cyber hygiene, however you want to term it. What we found in a lot of organisations is, is that they're all aware of the need to train staff. They all undertake regular annual training in cybersecurity awareness, whether that be as part of the push that was through a couple of years ago from GDPR training, or whether that's just a good regime internally around cybersecurity awareness. However, it still doesn't account for those times where somebody's been working for a long time during the day, they're tired, they're, you know, they receive that one email that looks legitimate but hasn't been given that kind of phishing awareness of kind of issues that might occur from clicking that link from an unexpected email that may be requesting for certain types of information. One of the good ways that we found of addressing that kind of um, issue is to undertake phishing simulations within organisations, which basically allows you to run in a safe environment that exact kind of simulation which it nothing forces the message home more than you've been caught up in a phishing simulation because you do feel embarrassed and I speak from personal experience over the years of having been caught up on one at the end of a very long day and you click the link and oops 
all of a sudden you've been caught up in a simulation. But it stops that embarrassment of you doing it actually in reality. It heightens the re it heightens the awareness of those kind of situations. It prevents you making a silly mistake. I've known war stories over the years of chief executives in an organisation clicking on a link pertaining from the HMRC saying you've got a tax refund and letting the information out. And then once they're in, they're in, you've given them all the credentials and they're spread. Um, in that particular case, a ransomware virus throughout the organisation, it's very easy to do. And the key issue in every one of those circumstances, it's the people, either not being aware or not having the knowledge in which to challenge that the link might not look accurate. The email address might not look genuine. The spelling of the email itself might be slightly generic or might be slightly unusual, which leads you to put two and two together and come up with the right answer to say, hang on a second, this email might not be genuine. And it's catching the little things and it's relatively easy to do both through the phishing simulation test, but also good annual training or even updates through, you know, regular communication with staff just to let them know that these kind of things are going on and happening. Yeah, I think that's right. And you, you talked just earlier about that sort of embarrassment about being the one who clicks on, on the link. But I mean, some of these sort of phishing scams are quite sophisticated, aren't they? I mean, some of them, I mean, we're, I think we're all sort of used to on our on our personal phones, at least getting a, a spam text saying it's from, I don't know, DPD and can you pay us £25 to release your parcel? And we all sort of know that that's not something we should be doing. But in the sort of work context, in the business context, as you say, it can just be one letter in an email address that's slightly different uh, and they can be very sophisticated. So the more that you can, I guess, raise awareness of those risks within the people who work with you, the, the, the better you're going to, to be. It, it, absolutely, and the sophisticated nature of them these days is, is overwhelming. And the intent really is to try and raise a sensible level of doubt in those kind of circumstances. So if something is unexpected or something comes from an unusual address, you can select the link first to have a look at to make sure that it looks like a genuine link. Ensuring that if you do have that level of doubt is that you ask the question, you either ask the question of somebody higher up within the organisation or more specifically you ask the IT department, is this genuine, before you actually do anything about it. And the phishing simulations it can help increase that. But it's the same as if somebody picks up the phone and asks you for information. If somebody's ringing you up and asking for information without providing their right credentials, you're not going to provide them the information or you shouldn't provide them the information. It's that kind of good information governance kind of control linking to cybersecurity controls that is absolutely vital to ensure the integrity of your environment. I guess you just want people who are working with you in your organisation just to be have a natural level of curiosity before they click on those links and just as you say just hover over the link to see what what it relates to look at the email address liz can i just ask you in terms of you know we're talking about people i think there's been some sort of recent sort of interesting commentary around staff welfare i wonder if you could just give us some some info on on that yes of course no thanks charlotte um 
Yeah, I, I guess it's coming from the, the position where if an organisation is an unfortunate victim um, of a cyber attack, it's, it's looking at the incident uh, response. And I know we're going to touch on that a bit later, but what, what uh, seems to be a big focus for the National Cyber um, Security Centre at the moment is, is putting staff welfare at the heart of those incident responses to ensure the staff feel well looked after. I think sometimes it can be overlooked in some cases that sometimes employees themselves could be the victims of a cyber attack. They could have had their uh, HR data stolen, for example, during such an attack. And so I think uh, what the NCSE are um, focusing on is ensuring that your people feel protected and there are there is a sustainable plan in place if an organisation does suffer from a cyber attack that that the staff uh, are the forefront of that plan because if staff welfare is not properly managed it does risk the situation where you, you exacerbate the attack and undermine any response that you're trying to uh, to put in place uh, to that attack and just following on from that if i may there's also the issues that we've all experienced over the last couple of years where you've had an increasing number of staff working from home or working on their own devices it's increasingly important to ensure that they operate good cybersecurity practice on their own devices and at home to protect your data as a business because it only takes a child to be using that same device to share some information or click on a link themselves at home that may mean that you don't have the separation between the business and the private world. But also in terms of you being able to have that integrity maintained over the access to your data or the access to your services or key facilities that may mean that there's a little bit of doubt brought into it outside of your control because you're not giving that good practice over bring your own devices, what you should do at home, how you control the access. And as Paul said earlier, the actual having multi-factor authentication in order to be able to access your systems is critical to ensure that you operate that level of security. It seems from what everybody's saying that, you know, your staff are, as you said, Neil, absolutely key, you know, to, to all of this. There's only so far that tech can go. You need to have the right processes in place. But the importance of staff sort of before and after a cyber attack can't really be underestimated. And I suppose that sort of leads us nicely into the third tip, which is around your processes. And we sort of touched upon it there, but just making sure that everybody within the business understands how the business operates and how it's supposed to operate, and particularly in a time of crisis. So Liz, can I come back to you on that? And just to chat through the sort of key points here for businesses to, to take away in terms of planning for and dealing with a cyber attack. Yes, of course. And I think when talking about this, I think it's good to start from a position of imagining that an organisation has been hit by a cyber attack um, or data breach. And an organisation needs to act fast, um, especially in the first 24 to 48 hours um, following a suspected attack. That's critical. And so when thinking about that and how the short time frame that an organisation and its employees has to respond to that attack. They really need to start thinking about the process that they're going to follow to ensure that a response uh, to such an attack is, is prompt. And what that will look like is a document that 
we typically class as a, a cyber or breach response plan. Um, but it's important to think about the process you're going to follow and stress test that. Does it work? And what a cyber response plan should cover are a number of things, but up there as one of the most important points is setting out what your team is going to look like who responds or assists you in responding uh, to an attack. You need a dedicated team from internal teams such as uh, IT, data protection, HR, business development, and also your external advisors, so such as your legal advisors or cyber security uh, consultants. And I think what's crucial in that is there needs to be a central point of coordination within that team. Um, everyone needs to understand each other's roles, responsibilities, and that means then that you can act quickly when an attack is suspected and you can as quickly as possible manage that incident. I think also what I'd like to raise is how important the first few hours are. If reportable, a cyber attack does need to be notified to the ICO within the first 72 hours. And so again, the cyber response plan needs to go through how the team is going to make the most of that time. For example, uh, fact finding, what's actually happened, uh, assessing the extent of the breach and how ongoing risks are going to be mitigated. Things that the organisation should be thinking through. Just on top of that as well, there's also the approaches that can be taken in terms of engaging insurance for, um, for cybersecurity incidents as well. And the nature of that relationship that you might have with that third party in terms of what their protection is. And increasingly, they'll be expecting you as an organisation to demonstrate that you have effective enough controls in place in the first instance to prevent such an attack. The insurance itself is no prevention to an incident occurring, but it will promote good practice. Mm. But then where do you, as Liz says, where do you have the notification to the ISO, potentially to the police, to your insurers, where they bring in the specialists that may be required from a forensics point of view in order to trace down the actual nature and, and originality of the attack? but also to then help you recover. And it's that interaction between those as part of your incident response plan that will be absolutely key. And that is the kind of thing you can prepare to a degree for. I don't think anybody's ever had a business continuity plan or an incident response plan that deals specifically with the actual incident that you will ever have. And you'd be lucky to have that. But you can deal with a context or a type of attack. That's where that has its strength in terms of that central coordination, knowing who to speak to, linking with outside third parties. I agree, Neil. And actually, it links back to what you were saying about people, because Processes are nothing if people don't follow them correctly. I think that's where the, the training um, point comes in as well that you mentioned previously. I think the benefit as well of doing a, a response plan is it helps an organisation identify the gaps that it has in, in its handling capabilities. But I do agree in uh, the point you raised about uh, insurance, Neil, and I think what would assist with that is when an organisation, as part of its plan, keeps a record or a log of decisions made uh, during the response actions taken. And that can be very helpful if that organisation needs to present evidence to a regulatory body or, in fact, very useful to learn from the incident, how it could have gone better and what needs to be improved. One of the things you've mentioned, Liz, there is about being prepared. But I think one of the things that can help in front of that is also testing your plans and exercising them to make sure they are actually going to support you in the event when an incident occurs. It gets people trained and aware of what their responsibilities are in real life simulation of it. 
But as, as Neil pointed out, there's no plan that's going to be perfect for the situation you find yourself in. But at least having the exercise capability and know what to do and how to do it will tend to stand our organisation in really good stead should it occur. It's also critically important that somebody does have that responsibility. My understanding is, is literally as of today, that following a cyber attack back in 2016, the actual head of security at Uber in America has been sentenced to 10 months in jail because they tried to hide a cyber attack. So they weren't open with the authorities, they weren't open with the right people. It just goes to show us what the penalties can be to failing to actually address these issues. I mean, it's on a larger scale, it's a massive organisation, but it is important to face the reality of these situations and needing to know who to communicate with, how to go about doing that and where the responsibilities lie. I agree, Neil, and I think in a nutshell, it's about a business understanding its risks, understanding what it cares about and why and, and how it's going to protect them and what's going to happen if they no longer have access to them or, or no longer have control over those elements. Um, all great talking points for a business when implementing such a plan. Yeah, I think, you know, we, we've seen and I think probably we've all seen in practice what happens when businesses don't have an effective plan in place. And as Liz said, that sort of first 24, 48 hour period is so critical that if you're spending a lot of that time unsure about what your internal capabilities are and what external resources you might need, or even how to go about responding to something like this, because you haven't thought about and planned how you would deal with that, then you can waste a lot of time. And as Liz said, the sort of reporting obligations are very tight. And it's something that, you know, you find quite a lot people within the public domain may find out about this before you are ready to tell people. So you also need to be ready to tell the story, to explain if necessary what has happened and sort of provide some reassurance if you're, if you know, if you're dealing with a breach that's affected, you know, I guess as with Uber, sort of lots and lots of customers or whether it's your employees, you, you also need to think about your communication angle as well. Uh, and they're all things that you're going to have to do in a very short period of time. I mean, from a risk perspective, it isn't just about the sort of four virtual walls of your business, is it? It goes wider than that. And I think probably as our number four top tip, we've got to look at issues around supply chain as well. So, Liz, could you just give me the sort of the context of this? So I think, am I right in saying there's been a sort of rise in those types of uh, attacks, or at least we're seeing the ramifications of those attacks within a supply chain then going on to affect the logistics of how your business can work? Uh, yes, that's right. That, that's certainly what we've seen. And it seems that that's what the government has seen as well, because the risk that supply chains pose is being addressed in the government's national cyber strategy uh, this year, which is great. But there's always more work that can be done. And, and what we're seeing, particularly in, in SMEs and their supply chains, is that, that the message about the risk that supply chains pose is not filtering down to those businesses. Or if it is, that they're not able to address those risks or they don't think they can. And I guess this leads me nicely to the topic that Travers have looked at. And we've recently published a white paper on enhancing uh, cyber resilience, particularly looking at uh, supply chains. And business supply chain can be one of its biggest uh, vulnerabilities because of the information that you're having to share with your uh, suppliers and access to documentation to allow them to perform their contractual obligations. It opens a business up 
up. And so what we saw through putting together our white paper was that boards effectively need to get on board and they need to actively engage in their organisation's risk, particularly as part of their ESG strategy. It's so important for organisations to look at improving their supply chain cybersecurity compliance and to keep that under regular review. And we found that it should be viewed as a shared responsibility between an organisation and its suppliers. So carrying out risk assessments, setting minimum security standards and and auditing those suppliers. I won't go on too much, I know that Neil and Paul, that you have some very good points uh, to raise in this area. So I'll I'll pass on to you to talk about some of those in more detail. Yeah, I think Liz, you you highlighted a number of issues there and it's a key area that affects a lot of businesses uh, because one of the things we've seen in in this response to the COVID pandemic in 2020, a lot of organisations significantly accelerated their adoption of cloud-based technology, which was done at pace, but often not with the level of rigour you would typically expect if you had to do it at normal pace. So things like, did you get your information governance teams? Did you get your data protection security experts in place? Often that wasn't the case. It was get a solution in because we need to be productive. And that is a difficult thing to address retrospectively in an organisation. And that's that's a key risk area overall. There's also issues around about the risk transfer. You touched on it earlier. You you do risk transfer in terms of operational and technical responsibilities, but it's your data, it's your systems that are sitting in the cloud. But if anything goes wrong, it's your organisation that hits the front page. It's your reputation that gets damaged. You may have to pay financial penalties associated with it and deal with the after effects of that. So there's a a lot of issues in there. And there's a key part as well about when when you transfer that responsibility to a third party, it's how do you get assurance on what they are doing and how they are controlling things. Um, There's ways to do that. So typically as part of our contract, you'll have a right of audit. Most suppliers won't want you in doing it. You should ask for and request like a third party assurance report from them, whether it's an ISAE 3402 or a SOC 2 report uh, from that. Or if they're not of a scale to do that, then you may wish to do an audit yourself and commission your own audit as part of that. I'll hand over to Neil to see what thoughts he has on this. I think those third party reports are getting increasingly important to provide some level of assurance to an organisation that the third parties that are dealing with are actually effectively controlling access to their information and access to their systems. I think we've seen a number of recent attacks, SolarWinds being the one that's predominantly been in the news, where a weakness that the third party was found, and that was used to exploit connections to other third party organisations as a massive supplier of IT third party services um, that SolarWinds was, and that caused a huge amount of upheaval, particularly in America, but not just related to America, it was related across the whole world to be honest and those kind of issues we need to have again it boils down to communication we need to have good communication between yourselves and a third party to identify when those issues might happen but once again be able to include that kind of response in your instant response plans and to say how you would recover from those incidents. I mean, they do have a number of potential risks that they pose in third parties, which is the access to the organization systems, storing your personal data or the intellectual copyright or the property of the organization, as well as them being themselves subject to phishing attacks, virus attacks, and other malware that could have that knock-on effect to you. Although you're not directly responsible, 
you're going to be impacted and being able to have a response to that. I think increasingly as we outsource more and more, whether it be to the cloud, whether it be third-party services, whether it be support services, that is going to play more and more in the type of work that assurance auditors will do for you in terms of checking those reports, checking those statements that come from those third parties, as well as also making sure that you've got appropriate response processes in place. Yeah, it sounds like there is a there's a lot to do, isn't there, in terms of looking at your supply chain and and just understanding, I suppose that's the, the key part, is, is understanding where those risks lie so that you can plug the gaps or ask your suppliers to, to plug the gaps. And I guess making sure that you're contracting responsibly and who you're contracting with, you know, their vulnerabilities in the systems that they have in place aren't going to, you know, have a knock-on effect on all the brilliant work that you've been doing in relation to your own cyber resilience and your own cyber security. Absolutely, because you'll be so tightly wound into their kind of services that it becomes difficult to extricate yourself from their problem. You are all on a line as a service as, as such, and it impacts you from that point of view. And I, I've seen, I mean, I've seen a recent experience with a client where they were a, a collateral damage, where a supplier of a supplier was hit by a cyber attack, and it cascaded into them and took their operations down for an entire weekend. So... It's, it's demonstrable evidence of how interconnected our data and operations are, but stresses the need for getting assurance over how, how do you secure your own networks and your own data as part of that. Because I think looking back, when I, I suppose when I first started doing IT audit and assurance work, it was you had a wide area network across a couple of sites, but a couple of decades on, you're now into a vastly complex IT environment where there's a cloud by default strategy for many organizations because of the, the affordability elements of it. So the ways and means and angles through which people can access your network and your data now are much larger. And it's important that organizations take a hard look at where, where their data exists and how they protect it. But it's really important they understand their entire environment as part of that to, man to allow them to manage their risk properly. Yeah, and I've seen it. It's not just the immediate aftermath that can have obviously significant consequences for you. I've been involved and still involved in claims and threatened claims through the courts where people are saying, I'm your customer and you're someone in your supply chain has been hacked and my details have been the victim of that attack. And I'm going to try and bring a claim against you for not having the appropriate processes in place not having the appropriate security in place and you know this is sort of three years after the cyber attack took place so you know those ramifications in many different ways can be seen sort of years after the event as well so that's something else to bear in mind so that's all been really interesting i think as you can see we could all speak for days on this topic because it's so wide-ranging um but hopefully if you're either starting off in your journey towards cybersecurity or you're looking to review where you're at at the moment, I think we've got some good top tips for you. So I'm going to actually ask each of our guests to sort of let us know their top tips. So Paul, if I could come to you first. Yeah, I think I would maybe go back to my original comment and say, make sure you treat cyber as a business risk and don't be afraid to ask either your IT provider or your internal IT team difficult questions on how they are securing your network and making sure they give it to you, that information to you in business terms. Excellent. Thank you, Neil. Um, it, for me, it would be the risk of supplier 
chain of tax, which remains fairly high. And knowing that you as a business in the organizations that you deal with with IT are only as good as your weakest supplier and ensuring that they themselves, if they are dealing with your systems or data, have adequate security themselves around their systems. Thank you. Uh, Liz? Uh, for me, it would be uh, preparing and importantly testing a cyber response plan, especially focusing on who your dedicated team is going to be in facilitating any response to attack. Brilliant. And I think for me, it will probably be people. I mean, they're your first line of defence and you know, I don't think you can, you can underestimate how integral your people are, both to your business generally, but in terms of your business risk as well. So getting it wrong, getting it right, it's, it is all about the people. Um, so thank you very much to our guests today and the team here. Thank you for sharing your insights. It's been really fascinating. And thank you to everyone who's joined us. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Trowers and Hamlins. Find us at trowers.com and join in the conversation on Twitter at Trowers, or find us on LinkedIn and Instagram.